dust one too. All right. Thank you, Carl and June, for the songs. And also Bill and Cindy for the testimony you shared. Leads right into a little bit of what I'd like to share here this morning, I believe. <clears throat> Maybe not directly the whole way through, but I was asked to speak on finding hope in God's design. And sometimes we face circumstances in life where we really question God's plan and God's design maybe for our lives, but I believe, as was said, that I don't believe God makes mistakes. Last evening, I had the privilege to talk with a girl that uh, actually drew some pictures of the pain in her heart. I don't have them with me, but some very, very graphic pictures of some pain she's been through. Uh, Pretty horrible situation growing up at home. But last night I saw a light in her eyes that many, many people don't have. And I honestly believe that the higher the pain, the more difficult the circumstance, the higher the calling God has for people. We have a handout. I believe Lee and Jeremy will pass out a two-page handout. We have about 80 copies if you guys want to hand them out. Uh, If you want to take one per couple, I wasn't quite sure how many to bring. Uh, if we run out, we'll ask the church if we could make a few copies, and we'll get you a copy if they don't quite reach this morning. I would like to look at, I guess, God's design for our lives today, and uh, there's a lot of angles we could go. I have to keep moving this morning. I'll try to watch the time and stay on track for today. I often share on the emotional maturity of a person, and you can go about two or three hours on that pretty easily. So I'm also going to throw in the spiritual maturity this morning, and you could probably go quite a while on that also, and we're going to do all this in about 43 minutes if plans hold out. (laughs) One thing I will not try to do this morning, I will not try to exhaust these subjects. In fact, I tried to put the outline together so that I can give you some information this morning. I know your mind is swimming already with the week. Someone mentioned this morning it's like drinking through a fire hose. And uh, we'll just turn the spigot on a little bit further today, if that's okay. I don't expect you to remember everything I say. I don't expect to be able to exhaust some of this subject. But my goal, I guess, this morning would be to give you some food for thought. And then also allow you to go home and look over the outlines, if you would like. And I have some material that I can point you to, if you would like to go a little further with some of these thoughts. Some of what I'm going to share has really helped me understand our American society today, and that's why I share it. Let's begin just briefly by looking at God's design, God's plan. What is God's plan? Now, we often hear how the heart is desperately wicked and who can know it. That's true. We look at sin, we've looked at pain, we've looked at difficult, difficult situations this week already. And we could go on and on and on. Every person in this room has a story And many, many times it has to do with negative and bad things and pain, uh, damage. What is God's plan? I won't take the time to read the scriptures again. You can write them down, look them up if you'd like. But in Ephesians 1, I'm sorry, I believe it's Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 1 and 4 and 12 talk about how God planned or predestinated that we would be his children. That's God's plan, that we would be his children He also says in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are created unto good works. I thought we're evil. I thought we're bad as human people. God's original design was that we would do good works. He also says that he wants us to be able to reach out and care about others. God's plan is that we should be the praise to the praise of his glory. God has made every provision for us. And then we have responsibility. And again, we could probably take this slide and just cover the hour. I won't do that. But those are, that's food for thought. I look at Scripture. I look at God's, who God is. And I look at how we're created in his image and how we've been given a ministry that Christ carried in this world. And I see that God intends that we do a lot of good works. He intends that we reach out, care about people, and that we bring him praise. There is one problem. We have sin in the world today. And as Jeremiah says, the heart really is deceitful above all things. And sometimes it's desperately wicked and who can know it? What is the answer to that question, by the way? Sometimes I don't know 
my own heart. But there is one who does. And we heard this this week, how David pled with God, search my heart and know my thoughts. Search out those deep, deep secrets within me that sometimes I don't understand. God designed our heart. God created us. God knows our hearts better than we do because he made us. He's the one that understands everything that's going on inside. And he would have a goal that we are to do his work for him. Why Christ left this earth and took 12 men like you and I and said, you're going to build my church is beyond me. What a losing crowd he picked. (laughs) And then I look around the room, not too much at you, but I look at myself, and God says, I want you to help people. And I say, wow, what a loser he picked. Because I don't know what I'm doing. But I do know a man that knows what he's doing. And if we bring people to God, God will literally take you right through the week you spend with people and show you where to go. I have no idea where to go with people sometimes. I have to step away from that trail or we won't get done. Sins, testings, and trials, I believe, have a purpose. Give you an illustration, a little story. I tried to dig out some old pictures and they didn't do justice, so I'll just give you a story. My wife and I lived in Montana for about 11 years. We love the West. We have some beautiful rolling hills in Holmes County, but in the West they have mountains, and I love mountains. My brother lives out there also. His name is Tom. Tom and I did a lot of backpacking in the summertime. We'd often pick a lake or two out. And our goal was to make about two trips a year into the backcountry, into the lakes, and do some fishing in their beautiful, beautiful country. One day we were looking at maps, and uh, we loved to do that. We had a lot of topo maps and uh, sit down and plan our next trip. We saw these three little lakes high up in the peaks and the top of the mountains, and uh, there was no trail to them. Now, that's intriguing. The last five, six miles, there was no trail. We knew if we could get there, we'd be all by ourselves. (laughs) And uh, we made the plans. I think it took about two years, and one day we decided to go to Goat Heaven Lakes is what they were named. The area had been burned out, uh, miles and miles and miles of burned out forest. In fact, if it would not have been burned out, I'm not so sure we would have found the lakes because we couldn't have seen landmarks. Huge trees, big trees this big around, twice as tall as this ceiling, stark dead, branches all gone. They'd burned out 40, 50 years old earlier, and yet they stood. I looked at those trees as we walked through about eight or nine miles of burned out forest like that, And they were sort of awe-inspiring. There they stood, stark, white, ghostly giants that told stories of storms they had endured. And they were dead for 40 or 50 years, and they still stood. The West is really dry. Here they would have rotted. We got up to Good Heaven Lakes after a difficult climb and so on, and uh, nestled in the bowls of these high peaks, three high peaks, And one afternoon, this is July or August, and one thing you have to be careful with in the West is there's a lot of thunderstorms. One beautiful clear afternoon, uh, we heard the wind begin to pick up and a few clouds in the north, and in an hour or two, it picked up a little more and a little more, and we knew we had a storm coming. And we had one little nylon pup tent and a whole bunch of big dead trees all over, and there was no place to go. Uh, There was miles of dead trees. Uh, If you ever spent time in the outdoors, you're probably wise enough to know that wind and dead trees just don't go together. But there was nowhere to go. The wind kept picking up and picking up and picking up, and I've never, ever in my life heard a wind like that. It was actually coming from the backside of the mountain, the bowl, we were in the bowl, and the wind began to scream, and the best way I can say it, when it reached its crescendo, Sounded like a teapot, but not near as loud. There was just a whistle that I've never quite heard before when it hit the full blast. And we saw and heard trees toppling off the peaks like toothpicks running, fall, uh, falling down the shale and the rock slides. And uh, I sat there and I looked at those trees swaying back and forth and I wondered if I would ever live to see you guys. <laughs> I didn't know you back then. But it was... Uh, you felt about that big, and you were very, very vulnerable. The bulk of the storm passed probably two, three miles north of us. 
And you know, half an hour later, the wind began to die down. An hour and a half, two hours later, the skies cleared and there was peace again. And I looked at those trees with a renewed uh, respect, I guess. They had just faced another storm in life. And I had to ask myself, how many storms did they face to make them strong enough that even while they're dead, they don't fall over? Follow? They faced many, many, many storms when they were growing up. Probably in a tree's mind at least, probably things they didn't appreciate, things they didn't enjoy, the cold, harsh winters, the hot, beating sun, the wind, the rain. And yet they stood facing one more test, and they remain strong. Sin's testings and trials have a purpose. We don't enjoy them. I don't think Bill and Cindy enjoyed the fire in their home. In fact, Cindy thought she would never see the day that she'd laugh again. Now, if you met Cindy this week, you know that she laughs easily. She has a very pleasant nature, very likable person. But she went through some difficult storms in life. And I believe the trivial sort of got pushed aside and the important things in life are probably much more in the forefront of Bill and Cindy's minds today because of what they almost lost some years ago. Today they're much stronger than they were before. Yes, it left scars, literal scars. But today they have something that few people have. Today they can minister to people in ways that I can't. I don't understand what it's like to be burned like that. They can walk into a hospital and without words connect with a person that has been burned. I can connect with them intellectually and I can place myself in their shoes and yes, I may get tears in my eyes because I feel for them, but I can't minister to them like they, they could because they've faced a storm that I've never faced. God does have a purpose. <clears throat> we are shaped and molded and developed through the difficulties in life. God desires growth in three areas. Let's look at growth in our lives. God wants us to grow. He wants us to become more like him. There's three areas that God wants us to grow in. One is physical, one is spiritual, one is emotional. And we've talked about these three this week. We've talked an awful lot about the emotional, the hurts, and so on. Physical is my body. I think we understand that. Uh, the emotion, or the spiritual is my relationship with God. The emotional is the heart, the feelings, the emotions inside. Jesus himself grew in all three areas. Did you ever see this? Luke 2:52, when Mary took Jesus into the temple and Simeon blessed him. And then he says, you know, now I am ready to die. I've seen the Holy One of Israel. And then it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Stature was his body growing up. He was a little tiny baby like a few that have been here this week, and he began to grow physically in wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding. His relationship with God, I believe, was developed from the human side standpoint. He was fully God also. And in favor with God and man, Jesus had feelings. He probably wanted to get angry with people In fact, a time or two he did at what they were doing. He suppressed every sinful desire, every sinful emotion. He never sinned. But he also could laugh. He could cry. He could walk. He could talk. And he related with people. He increased in favor with God and with man. People liked Jesus. Till he began his ministry and showed them their hearts. Then they began to attack Jesus had to develop in all three areas. What is physical? Physical is bodily development. Basically, it's automatic. I'm getting to the age where I don't care how my body, body is automatically developing sometimes anymore, but I guess that goes with life. We'll leave that as it is. That will basically automatically develop. Physical endowments are no guarantee of spiritual, and I should have added, or emotional depth. Just because somebody is dressed very nicely, walks very well, and talks appropriately does not really show you where their spiritual being is and their emotional being is. We'll keep going with some of that. Now that will, my emotional spiritual being will come through, I know that. 
but we can also pretend we can put nice covers on. But if we really are tested when the storms come, then what happens? Second is spiritual. Spiritual, in my own way of explaining it, this is, I guess, been a challenge for me to think of it this way. Spiritual is to distinguish right from wrong. What does God say is what right and what does God say is wrong? And then I believe it's, is it Timothy or Titus where he says, rightly dividing the words of truth. Uh, we have to grow spiritually. That includes my understanding with God and also obviously my relationship with God. It's a progression. Actually, 1 John 2 Verse 12 to 14, he speaks of, and this is on your outline if you're trying to take notes, uh, the three levels of spiritual maturity, your first page, 1 John 2. He speaks of little children, he speaks to young men, and he speaks to fathers. Now, I'm going to go through some of this rapidly. You can take this home and look at it if you'd like. I read a devotional by Neil Anderson some years ago, and he mentioned 1 John here and how he speaks to little children, young men, and fathers, and he had a little bit of a devotional on that. I've taken that and actually expanded on that a little bit. I challenge you, if you want to, take the book of 1 John sometime and highlight every word of every one of these three phrases, the little children, the young men, and the fathers, and that's where this outline comes from. Little children... First John says, have a knowledge of God. Read the scripture, and I believe you'll find these thoughts there, and you may find some that I did not see. But little children have a knowledge of God. They, this is spiritual uh, youth, not physical. They have a knowledge of God. They've been taught, told about God. They know of God. They have their sins forgiven if they've asked Christ into their hearts. They're in the family of God. They belong in the family of God. They've actually overcome the penalty of sin, uh, but there's one thing about it. They have not yet grown to full maturity. They are, after all, just little children. Now, I think we all understand if a child accepts Christ and he's 12 years old, he's a babe in Christ. If a person doesn't accept Christ until they're 59 years old, they are still a brand new baby Christian when they accept Christ. Sometimes we expect spiritual maturity from them. I don't believe we can do that. They're just little children spiritually, not physically. I'm going to go through this rapidly. Forgive me if I do. At the bottom of your page, you can dig into it at home. Take the phrase little children in the book of 1 John and uh, have the references. I won't read them all for the sake of time, but here's what I paraphrased out of these passages. Neat little outline on how little children behave and sometimes spiritually too, but little children are prone to sin. Uh, little children are prone to deny a friend. Jesus or John encourages them to walk with Jesus and not to turn away from him. Deny a friend. Little children are prone to leave a friendship. How often have you been on the school bus and you have the best of friends and all of a sudden one comment's made, I'm not, never going to sit with you again. And they leave the friendship. That's a sign of immaturity, by the way. That's not maturity. They're prone to be deceived. They're prone to say one thing and do another. Oh, yeah, mommy, I'll do that. And then they get carried away with the dollar, the little dump truck, and they forget to do it. That's a child for you. And he encourages them not to worship idols. I read that and I thought, you know what? What is an idol? An idol is a worthless thing. How many times do we have a, ch a child that takes a trinket and just adores and loves and cherishes that trinket? That's the most precious thing in the world, but it's just a worthless little trinket. Am I being too blunt? <laughs> How do we act as adults? We're 30 and 40 and 50 years old now. What do we worship? What are our idols? Do they have value or don't they? Question you can ponder. Young men. He refers to young men in chapter 2 again. They are aggressively growing believers. They are strong in the word. They understand God's word. They know the truth and how to overcome the wicked one with it. Let me say that again. This is why we're here this week. They know the truth and how to overcome the wicked one with it. Don't turn your heads and look around and don't point fingers. <laughs> but walk through your community, walk through your church on Sunday in your mind and ask yourself, how many people really know God's word? And I know we can never exhaust it, that's true. How many people know how to overcome 
the enemy, the devil, and his plans with the word of God. How many know how to do that in my community? I think we begin to see that maybe we're not as mature as we think we are sometimes. And again, I know we'll never have all the answers to life. There's a ditch on both sides of the roads. I'm not talking about that. But if you walk into church and say, I'm angry, can somebody help me? Uh, Usually you have friends that leave a friendship at that moment (laughs) because we make people really nervous. They don't know what to do with us. Now let's not be too hard on them. 12 years ago, I had no idea how to help a person like that either. I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what to say. I didn't understand forgiveness. I didn't know what forgiveness was and what forgiveness wasn't. Till I met a kind-hearted man that explained my life to me out of scripture. And I don't have all the answers today, but I do have a little bit of a better idea of how to take the truth of the word of God and help people overcome the struggles in their life if they want to. And yes, I'm definitely still growing and hopefully maturing in that. Young men are no longer in bondage to uncontrollable habits. And again, we could go a long ways with that. Ask myself my life, what are the things I need to work on and continue to work on? Young men are resolving personal and spiritual habits. They are free and they know how to stay free. Interject the clause yet that we're all in process and we're all growing, I know that. But that's young men, fathers, Fathers have a deep personal relationship with God. They've been through many, many storms in life. They've figured out what they need to stand for and what they don't stand for. And you know what? The stability of our communities and our churches is our older people, people that have been Christians for many years. And yes, sometimes we don't like what they stand for and they're old-fashioned and they're dogmatic and they're whatever. But just like those huge trees in the wind, you're not going to move them. That brings stability, that brings safety, that brings security. They have a faith founded deeply or securely in a close, intimate, loving relationship with God. That's the spiritual maturity. I'd like to jump tracks, and I'd like to look at, I'm sorry, there's a song, O Come Angel Wings. Never saw this till we sang this at a nursing home one night with a guy by the name of Ray. He was a pastor, retired pastor. He was close to 90 years old, and he knew his time was short. A wonderful, wonderful man. He's actually passed away today. Now he's passed on. We sang the, uh, that song, and one verse says, Their strongest trials now are past. Their triumph has begun. And he got tears in his eyes, and he said, That's true. He said, Yeah, you know, I still have my trials, but really the biggest trials I will ever face in life are now behind me. And he says, my triumph is beginning. I'm going to meet the Lord. That was a father. That was a spiritual father. He had faced many storms, I believe. He had pastored many years. Sorry, I didn't know I was going to get all choked up here about it. But he stood firm. And he was waiting for his triumph to come. Beautiful picture. I'd like to look at the third area that God wants us to develop in, and that's the emotional. I will not be able to exhaust this, so again, I'm going to give you a brief outline. If you would like to go a lot further with this, there's a little green book that we have on our book table in the back, The Life Model by E. James Wilder and a few other writers. I met E. James Wilder at ICBC at a conference about eight, nine years ago. And uh, he has done a wonderful job of explaining how we develop emotionally. And sometimes I wish I had about three or four hours. He goes through and he explains how we need relationships to develop. We have some statements. There are some available in the back. If we run out, Cheryl would be glad to take your name and number, uh, send you one if you'd like to order one, or we can give you the information on where to get them. And and that's where the rest of this outline will come from, your second page here. We learn through, the, the, the mind is shaped through stories and relationships and pictures. The core part of our person, uh, they call it the control center of my mind. The way I will respond to people in difficult situations. That part of my mind is programmed through stories, pictures, and relationships. Now, That's why John has to go to the heart 
to change people. If you talk intellectually, the part of my mind that stores information, this outline I'm giving you, that's a different part of my mind. If I'm going to tell somebody 10 reasons why they shouldn't be angry or depressed or why they have to quit sinning, they will store that information in their mind. But as soon as they're triggered by anger, the control part takes over. And what they've learned in stories, that's why testimonies are so powerful, by the way. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. That's a story it would register. Pictures. Do you ever notice how a child is just totally intrigued with the pictures? They don't care about the words. They want to see the pictures that's shaping and molding their mind. Challenge you. Is it important what our kids watch on TV? Absolutely. And before the age of about four and a half to five years old, a child cannot differentiate between fact and fiction. So they believe everything as truth. Is it important watch to watch on TV? Absolutely. America, I tremble sometimes when I wonder where the next generation will go that has been programmed through violence and retaliation and revenge and anger when people hurt you. I'll leave that go for today. You can think about it. Relationships. How many times have we heard a comment like this? Be careful who you marry. He's going to be just like his who? Father. Be careful who you marry. She's going to be just like who? (laughs) Her mother. Why do we say that? Then if you're like me, you grew up and say, I will never do so and so. Will they? Oh, yeah, they will. (laughs) And the older I get, the more I have to be careful that I don't have the negative tendencies that I saw in my home. I also had a lot of good, positive tendencies in my home. Why? Because we imitate the people that we grew up with in close relationships. So if I have a father that gets angry when people upset him, he now has taught his child how to respond in anger to that. I was fortunate in many ways at 15 years old, I began working for a guy roofing, and he had a very opposite personality from my father, and I picked up strengths and weaknesses actually from both men. His name's Reuben, Reuben uh, up in Hartville, where I grew up. He was very pleasant. He never got angry. I don't have time for all the stories, but only once in six and a half years did I see his face turn beet red and he stayed sitting in the pickup because somebody was telling him to get out and have a fight. And if he'd have got out, the guy would have got decked. (laughs) But I saw a man control his anger and refuse to step out. I saw him do many things that sometimes were modeled differently. We moved to Montana. We did a lot of first things. I was in my late 20s. We bought our first home, we had our children there, we were by ourselves basically. And many times I'd think back and say, wait a minute, what would dad do? What would Reuben do? Oh, I can do that. Then I picked that up, I did what they would have done. Uh, I gotta keep going here. A Couple more pictures before we explain. How often have we heard someone look at a situation where a man or a woman They're 45, 50, 55 years old, 60 years old, and somebody makes a snide comment or something, and the person turns around and tells them a few things, and they get all bent out of shape, and they get angry. And somebody looks at that person and says, what in the world is wrong with him? He acts like a little kid. He acts like a little eight-year-old, right? Don't say this out loud, but the next time you hear that, say, thank you for helping me understand that person. Because at about eight years old, that man got damaged through whatever just came at him. And he learned how to protect his heart by getting angry at people. I don't have time for this this morning, but there's about five basic defenses how we'll protect our heart and make people go away so they don't hurt us anymore. One of those happens to be anger. Anger's a defense mechanism. At about eight years old, he got damaged. Change of scenario. You see a 14-year-old kid, if I may say so kindly, and somebody uh, insults him or something, and he turns around and says, what in the world's wrong with you? Did you get out of the wrong side of bed this morning? Come on, let's go have a cup of coffee, or come on, I'll help you, or whatever. And they look at him and say, wow, did you see what he just did? Listen carefully. He is so mature. Right? 
Now, wait a minute. The guy's 14 years old. The other guy's 54 years old. What's the difference? One has developed bodily. The one is lagging behind in that yet. But the one is much more mature than the other one is. Why? Because the older person got damaged and got stunted emotionally. Emotions is the feelings. Let's look at the emotional maturity. Emotional maturity is when I am able to face negative emotions without allowing them to change who I am. Interject a thought here. God is a very, very mature God. Do you ever wonder what this world would be like if God would be immature and change his mind and vacillate back and forth? Yeah, I forgave you yesterday, but today you're going to get it. I'm not going to forgive you after all. I decided you're going to get it. You deserve this. Whoa. Uh, We wouldn't make it. How do I know God's a very mature God? He says so. I am the Lord. I, what? Change not. We will never do anything that will make God change. Again, don't start pointing fingers and talking out loud. (laughs) But how many things change in your home or in my home from day to day? If we're doing good and happy and jolly, everything's fine, piece of cake, no problem. But you throw one glitch into the whole system and boom, we turn around and turn into something that we don't like who we are. And all of a sudden, we're changeable. Do you know that means I'm not very mature emotionally? And that's not supposed to be a slap in the face. It's supposed to be food for thought so we can actually grow. Emotional maturity is being able to return myself to peace and the joy in the midst of negative emotions. When things go wrong, the storms hit. Can I return to peace? Can I return to joy? Interesting thought here. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of peace and the spirit of joy. By the way, I'd like to give a thought I forgot to add, and it just left my mind again. Maybe I'm not supposed to share it. Yes, I got it back. I guess I'm supposed to. We, relationships, we imitate people. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, we want to see the Father. We've seen you, but we want to see the Father. And he said, well, you have. He said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He said, I can't do anything of myself. I only do that which I see my Father, which is in heaven do. So if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I just imitate him. We, and I wish, uh, I'm sorry, I'll stop wishing here. We go long, long ways with some of that. But think about that. We are giving a role model. We are giving a picture of God to our children. We are teaching them how to live life by how we live life, and they will imitate that. They will either imitate or react to it. Emotional maturity is being able to take care of two people at the same time. And our maturity does not determine our value. We all are precious in God's sight. But it does determine the level of responsibility that we can handle. You can't do a business or something like that or life if you don't have mature people. It just won't work. It'll be a flop. It'll be chaos if people vacillate back and forth. So we need mature people in key positions of our communities and society. There's seven major emotions that we need to learn how to regulate. One is shame. I'm embarrassed. I've disappointed you. One is fear. I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid bad things will happen. Third thing is anger. How do I control the anger? Fourth thing is humiliation. Fifth thing is disgust. Sixth is sadness. And seven is hopelessness and despair. Again, for the sake of time, I can't explain all of these. A lot of the material that E. James Wilder has, he actually goes in depth. He has a uh, video, and I don't have it here. He has a video DVD series on overcoming sexual addiction. If you ever want to go a long ways with a lot of this, I'd highly recommend that video. Because in order to explain sexual addiction, we've talked here how to resolve that. E. James Wilder explains why it happens to begin with. In order to explain sexual addiction, you have to understand the needs in a child's life and how the mind works and how we start to program ourselves. And if we have pain inside, we start to look for things to cover. That's where alcohol and drugs and any kind of addiction, sexual addictions and so on come in. But if I can understand what's going on inside the person's heart to begin with, then I can understand where to go to help them. And that's where a lot of this uh, comes from. These are the seven emotions that somehow we have to learn to regulate 
I pick up one of those little children in here, they have no regulation over these things yet. Hopefully in 10 years from now, they'll have a good grasp on how to regulate their fear, their shame, their anger, their humiliation. Hopefully in 30 years, they'll have a much better grasp of how to do that. Sad to say, many people don't. There's five stages that God wants us to develop, and these are now on your second page in the handout. You can add a sixth stage if you would like. Someday I will, and that's actually before a child is born. Emotionally, they have developed or been damaged many times. These are the five stages, and I'll try to briefly go through each one. A child has developed very, very much before they are born emotionally. Science is pretty well proven a child can hear, and I believe, was it Gary on the initial opening? Gary did a wonderful job just explaining what a child can comprehend in the womb. Uh, I have a friend, I believe she's here, I don't see her right now. She works with uh, crisis care. She gave me this thought a couple years ago. Science has proven they can regulate a baby's heartbeat and monitor a baby without uh, punching holes in people's heads and bellies and things like that today. Science is rapidly beginning to understand much, much greater detail how a child develops in the womb and so on. But if a lady is pregnant and she smokes, if she thinks about smoking, the baby's heart rate goes up. Did not even have to light up? Why? Here it comes again. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The, the smoke takes the uh, oxygen out of the blood. And so if she thinks about a cigarette boom, the baby's heart rate jumps because they know what's going to come. That's amazing. Uh, if you have a person, I believe you've probably all heard John speak of this if you've been to different seminars. If a mother contemplates abortion but doesn't follow through, that baby will never connect with the mother. Fear. That's the person that tried to kill them or was going to. And at 20 years old, they will not have a connection but they also won't understand why. Because nothing happened, so to speak. So there is a pre-birth. I won't go there. Let's start with the infant stage. There's five, and by the way, this, is, this particular, these five stages is what E. James Wilder uh, explains very well in here. I have their permission to do this. There's a couple charts in the middle uh, that I've asked if I can have this for PowerPoints and so on handouts, and they gave me permission to do that. I appreciate that. But he explains how we develop in these stages, and typically we will need close relationships to develop in these. Let's look at them briefly here. Infant stage is approximately birth to three years old. Uh, these are approximate ages. The primary task for a young child is to learn how to receive. Now, sometimes I tell people there's three years of your life that you're allowed to be absolutely, totally self-centered and self-focused. And before you get too excited, we're all past the stage now. <clears throat> For the first three years of my life, I have no idea how to help myself. It's all about me. I need someone to help me. So if I get hungry, what do I do as a baby? You cry and cry and cry and cry till somebody feeds you. I don't know how to fix the bottle. I don't know how to get food. If the pamper's wet and I'm uncomfortable, what do you do? You cry and cry and cry and cry and scream and shake the kid uh, crib till somebody comes and helps. If I'm scared, what do I do? I cry and cry and cry and cry. Poor little girl, I picked a little girl. I enjoy kids. I picked one up the other day. I was going to babysit for the mom, and the first thing she did is start crying about this scary old man. She couldn't run away. She couldn't help herself. I gave her back to mom. I helped her out. <laughs> If I don't learn how to receive, there will be weak and stormy relationships. By the way, if you have a child that receives, but there's pain attached to it, either the child will quit asking to be helped in the only way they can, or you have a lot of weak and stormy relationships. I had a lady that came up to me at a seminar we did in Indiana one day, and she said, James, I shared some of this. She said, I have a question. She said, if a baby just flat out does not cry, never cries. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? She said, in fact, we have to actually watch the clock. When it's time to feed the baby, we have to feed the baby. He won't cry. We don't know when he's hungry. And I said, well, I don't know the details of your story, but I said, I'll give you an answer off the top of my head. 
I said, yes, some babies are much more pleasant or whatever, yeah, easy to care for than others, and some are colicky and all that. I know that. There's a big range. But I said, if the baby never cries, I said, there's a very good possibility that when they needed things like they got hungry, and if they began to cry, that they received what they needed, but they also were hurt then. Oh, here, have your bottle. And I said, a baby will pick up the emotions very quickly, and if there's hurt going to come with the need, there's a chance that your little baby you're describing will not ask for what it needs anymore. And her face dropped a little. It was actually her nephew. She said, I'm afraid that's what's happening. She said, the father sometimes is fairly rough with the child. And I said, that's probably why he doesn't cry then. He's scared to cry. He doesn't want to get hurt. Now, I can guarantee you that as that little boy grows up, if things don't change, he will never connect with his father because he disconnected at six months old already. Follow what I'm saying? He detached in relationship at probably one or two months old. And at 18 years old, they're going to have a lot of weak and stormy relationships. I have to keep going. The second stage, if we develop and if we learn how to receive, by the way, people that get damaged, I need to say this, damaged emotionally will be stunted in these areas and will not develop emotionally till they find healing. They'll grow up physically. They may even start to grow and mature somewhat spiritually, but they're stunted emotionally. If people never learn how to receive, one way you can see that, and again, be very, very careful, don't show a person what they just showed you. You'll just damage more. But if you do something nice for someone, here, uh, bake some pies. This, this would fit in Holmes County. They love to eat here. Wonderful cooks in Holmes County. So a lady makes a bunch of pies one day, and oh my goodness, she doubled the recipe. She wasn't aware of it. She's got six pies. She only needs three. So she takes the pie over to the neighbor lady, and she's going to do something nice for her. Knocks on the door and hands her a pie and says, here, I'm sorry, I made way too many pies. Would you guys like a pie for dinner tonight? What would most people say? Uh, thanks, I uh, appreciate it, right? But if you have somebody that has been damaged at a very early age and they've never learned how to receive, I'll try to do this quietly so I don't freak you all out, but she will get a response that's totally off the wall. <laughs> don't you think I can cook? What? I'm sorry, I was trying to, oh, I don't need your pies. Whoa, what in the world happened? By the way, does that sound like a mature person? Eh, not really in my mind. Just don't say, hey, I know what's wrong with you. You're not very mature. You will, you'll get the fire in your face. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> That's not a good thing to do. But all of a sudden, you can see the heart of a person. Wow, that person's been damaged pretty severely if that's how they respond. See, everybody else will only look at the anger. Okay, I'll never do anything for her again. And they won't. They'll pull away. There's more rejection for her, which makes her more angry, which makes her tear the next person's head off a little stronger. We repeat the cycle. That's someone that has never learned how to receive, though. Or they've been damaged when they received and so on. The next stage is approximately 4 to 12 years old. And there's a span here. We expect a 12-year-old to be able to do more than a 4-year-old. But their primary task, the thing they need to learn to do, is to take care of self. Now, we see children automatically begin to do this. I'll give you the resulting problem. They won't take responsibility for themselves if they never learn to do this. We see the little boy or the little girl. He wants to pull his T-shirt over his head, and he wants to feed himself, and he wants to try his shoes. He's saying, look, I want to take care of myself. Now, how do you teach a child to take care of themselves? Let them do things for themselves. Actually make in the right context of that. Make them do things. Responsibilities are good. Here's how it works in our home. Now my boys are 14 and 18, so I very seldom have to do this anymore. But when they were young, four or five years ago, Justin especially would often, he was six, seven years ago, whatever, or old. Uh, Dad, get me, can you get me a drink? We're sitting at the dinner table. Well, I can do it all for him, but he's older than three years old. It's time he learns how to take care of himself. Ah, why don't you go over and grab yourself a glass of water? You know where it is. Oh, come on, why can't you get it for me? Come on, help yourself. You can get it. Grow up. Help yourself. Where's my shoes? I don't know. Where'd you put them? Well, I don't know. I can't find them. Well, 
look in your closet. Well, I did. Well, keep looking until you find them. Help yourself. Now, balance again. If he was laying in bed, Dad, I forgot, I need a drink. Okay, I'll get you one. I'm not saying make them do everything. That will damage too. That's too much responsibility. I got to give you a catch here because we're going to fly for the last five or ten minutes and I won't get it in. These two are the most important ones to understand. E. James Wilder says, and he says the number is too low, and I agree with him. In America, when you look at society, uh, 70% of men and 60% of women, those numbers are too low. 70% of men and 60% of women are still somewhere in the infant or child stage, no matter how old they are. I want to say this very, very respectfully and very kindly, but this is the perfect scenario of people that are trapped in a child stage that are now 50, 60, 70 years old. It's been a few years ago, but you probably remember Hurricane Katrina, right? What did you see on national TV if you watched the news or read the newspaper? You know what frustrated my wife the most? My wife is a go-getter, and she can't stand clutter and so on. That's good. I like a clean house, too but I tend to have clutter, and she picks up after me. (laughs) Uh, The most frustrating thing was, if you watch news, all these people standing around, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands at a camp, and there is trash all over the place. My sister actually was down at Alert, and they had a couple hundred, and they basically destroyed the place. They offered people work to help pay, to help them clean up. They wouldn't take it because they might lose Social Security benefits. Now, again, I want to say this kindly, but this is reality. There was people 50, 60, 70 years old, hundreds of them saying, where is the government? Why aren't they helping us? Hear that? We are their problem. They're supposed to fix this for us. We have no idea how to take care of ourselves. Why don't you make our life better? Sorry for getting emphatic. (laughs) That's literally what they were saying. We have no idea how to fix our mess. You have to help us. We cannot take care of ourselves. Isn't that a shame? Then you had a tornado go through Holmes County, and I'm not lifting up Holmes County. Actually, this happened in Cleveland also. Barely even got on the news because two days later, most of the stuff was fixed back up. The one chicken house had half the roof gone. It was full of chickens, 500 feet long. Before dark, the roof was back on. Wow. (laughs) Now that tells me, again, this is not individual, but community. That tells me we have one mature community and one very immature community. That make sense? We can help ourselves. If I don't take responsibility for myself, I become someone else's problem. They have to fix my life. How many times when you work with a couple do you see that? He's not taking care of me. Why doesn't he talk to me? Oh, boy. I better stop. (laughs) If we develop in this area, we are now ready to become what we call an adult. We're not an adult before we learn how to take care of ourselves. We are actually immature little children emotionally. 13 to the age of approximately 13 to, again, approximately the birth of my first child. Again, this would be puberty. The body starts to change and so on. Now my task again begins to change. Now, if I know how to take care of myself, by the way, we develop in all of these areas for the rest of our life, but if I have a pretty good grasp of how to take care of myself, and if I know how to receive, I now can take care of the other person at the same time. By the way, side note, food for thought, you'll hear it in John's seminars. If I make a child responsible for someone else before they're old enough to carry that responsibility, I will drain the child. I'll damage the child. You make a child responsible for a parent, even at 13 years old, there probably will be some damage. But if they're six years old, I could tell you some horror stories of people I've worked with that are absolutely, totally drained at 20 years old. They don't know how to do anything. But they were responsible to be a parent to a mother that had a nervous breakdown. It's not mom's fault. But at six years old, she has no idea how to be a mom. But somebody has to cook. If you want something to eat, you got to cook. So somehow she figured out how to cook a little bit. If you want clean clothes, you got to wash. But she didn't know how to wash, and nobody showed her how to wash. But somehow she figured out how to do laundry in her own way. Every day she'd go across the street to the store and buy a little bit of food for her and her brother, two years younger than her. 
She walked into my office at 21 years old, had been married a year and a half, and she said, James, I just don't know how to do anything. She said, I, I just don't know how to do anything. She said, I can get a pair of Sunday, uh, a Sunday shoes, and I can try to clean those, and two hours later, I basically have them destroyed, and I laughed a little, chuckled, and she did too. I thought she was joking. Two weeks earlier, on the way home from church, she had walked through a mud puddle, and she had gotten mud on her shoes, and she sat in her kitchen, uh, in her kitchen the next day and tried to clean the mud off of her shoes for two hours and basically destroyed the shoes. They say that can't be possible. I know, it can't. Unless our needs haven't been provided for and we have no idea how to take care of ourselves and nobody shows us how. She found an escape. I'm going to add this. and If you give me about five more minutes, we'll try to wind it up and take our break. She found one escape. She was very intelligent. And academically, in school, she could lose herself. And as a senior in a class of, I can't remember for sure, it was either 400 or 600, either one is a big senior class. She was a valedictorian in school. And everybody wanted to be just like her. We want to be just like you. I'll call her Sally. That's not her name. We want to be just like you, Sally. No, no, you don't want to be like me. Yeah, yeah, you have it all together. No, you don't want to be like me. Yeah, but you have it. Yeah, no, no, you do not want to be like me. One day, she took a friend home. And her friend walked through the house. The house was bare. And her friend was stunned. She expected to see this immaculate house. She had a picture of her as a very well-to-do family and everything together because of what she did academically. Her friend opened the refrigerator, sort of walked through the house in a stunned silence. She opened the refrigerator, and the refrigerator was empty. And she said, Sally, where's your food? And she said, well, I haven't been to the store yet today. She said, no. She said, where's your food, though? She said, well, I haven't been to the store. No, she said, people have food. Wow. All of a sudden I understood why. Because see, from six years old until, actually until she got married, she had to take care of her mom. She said, often my mom was laying in bed with tears running down her face almost all day long every day. And a six-year-old girl has no idea how to comfort a mom. And she got drained. And she got tired. And she had to figure out life on her own. Nobody showed her how. All of a sudden, it made sense why she said, I don't know how to do anything. And two weeks earlier, she had destroyed shoes, sat there for two hours, because she had no idea how to clean shoes at 21 years old. Now, making a child responsible for someone else before they're old enough, that's what can happen. Obviously, that's an extreme situation, but that is the potential. If I know how to take care of myself, I now am ready to reach out and take care of another person. Their feelings matter, their wants, their wishes, their desires. If I'd never learned this, I, I lack the capacity to be in a mutually satisfying relationship. If I stop here and don't develop this area, and if I get married, then I now, uh, I can take care of myself and I know how to receive, but it will all be about me. I want to do this. I'm going to do that. Well, I want to do, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. Now, again, forgive me. Uh, She has to fix his life or vice versa. Honey, I need another Coke. Can you get me one? Well, why can't you get one? Oh, come on. I'm watching football. You're my wife. You're supposed to be able to do this. Make my life better. I can't reach out to you and don't mess up my world. If things are going good, we'll do all right. But if you mess up my world and if you don't help me, then all of a sudden the world falls apart and I change. I become a person that you don't like. If I learn how to take care of the second person, now and only now in God's plan, am I ready to be a parent? Sad to say, if I go back to the 70, 60% of people in America, most parents today, and again, I mean this very, very kindly, are absolutely not ready to be parents. Why? Because they're still totally self-centered. You have to fix my life, make me happy. I can't give to you. And then they have children. And you have self-centered parents with children. You have a lot of damage, and the cycle repeats. It's approximately from the birth of my first child until the last child leaves home. And again, I know some parents don't have children. Some children never move out. That's okay. These are approximates. Primary task now again changes. My primary task, James Wagler today, now my boys are getting older. I'm almost ready to step out of this stage in a few more years probably. But you know what my primary task is today? 
Freedom Hills and Seminars, right? Wrong. My primary task today is to sacrificially, and I don't do this perfectly, don't get that picture. I'm learning and growing too. But I do try to do this. I lay down my wants, my wishes, my goals, my desires for the sake of my children and my wife. Here's how it sounds. It's Sunday afternoon. I never could understand why people want to take a nap on Sunday afternoons when I was a kid because I was hyper. There's no way in the world you can sleep on a Sunday afternoon. But the bodily development has occurred in my body too. I love a Sunday afternoon nap. (laughs) But I've got children with needs. Dad, can you help me? Can you take care of me? Can you be there for me? Here's how it sounds. Dad, you want to throw some pitch and catch? Oh my goodness, I want to just lay down and take a nap. (laughs) What are we going to do? I got needs for him, I got needs for me. Did you know you can actually win both of those very easily? John often mentions it doesn't take a whole lot to fill a cup. I sure don't feel like doing this sometimes, but I've done this more than once. Okay, go grab the ball and the glove. We'll do it. I'll play with you for 20 minutes or half an hour. That's all it takes, by the way. And you go outside and you throw pitch and catch. And it is hot. And pretty soon he's had his fill and say, you know what? Uh, Why don't we quit for a day? Okay, Dad, thanks. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for playing. Oh, good. Now I can go take a nap. He doesn't mind. I filled his need for the day or the time. Now I can do my thing. So it's not about saying, okay, I'll never do anything for myself. That's not what it's about. But can I lay down my life for other people? If I can, I'm not ready to be a parent. The resulting problem, again, will be distant or conflicting relationships. If I'm self-centered, the needs of my children won't be met. There will be distant and conflicting relationships. The last stage, the elder stage. The Bible speaks about elders. I don't want to step on toes, so let me redeem myself as I go. When the Bible speaks of leadership in the church, he talks about elders, right? I never saw this till I started looking at some of this, but I'm convinced today that I'm actually too young to stand up here today and speak to you. Somebody about 60 or 70 or 80 years old should be up here. They should have figured this out 40 years ago and showed it to me when I was two and three and four years old, but nobody did. Something is lacking in my church, probably your church too. Now let me redeem myself. I have nothing against younger men coming into ministry if there's older leadership to work with. See, that was Paul and Timothy. He told Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but Paul took him under his wing and said, I'll be your father. I'll be your spiritual father. If you have questions, if you have needs, come to me and I will help you. Beautiful relationship. Barnum Research tells us that a pastor that goes to seminary, 20, 25 years old, comes out of seminary at 25 years old and pastors the church all by himself. 90% of those men will not be in any kind of ministry at the age of 35. 10 short years later, they're done. Why? With all due respect to every man that does that, I believe his heart is a heart of gold and he wants to serve God and serve people, but with all due respect, he's too young to pastor a church all by himself. He's not ready for that. He hasn't been through life. He hasn't seen the storms of life. He hasn't planted roots deep enough to withstand the attacks of people and the attacks of the devil. He needs a few people to stand with. Then you have a picture that can work. But if he's all by himself, he's too young. Let's change it from preachers, ministers to town mayors. I hope this doesn't get around in the community. I can because I respect the man because of what he did. Sugar Creek, Ohio, 20 minutes from here. A couple years ago, had a brand new mayor and everybody was excited and made front page headlines. We have a 25-year-old mayor. Now, let me ask you a question. Is he old enough to be the mayor of Sugar Creek, or isn't he? <laughs> I don't really think so. Bless his heart, I'm sure he's much more intelligent and brighter than I am. I'm sure he had the credentials and the schooling and all of that. But he's not old enough. You know how I know. 
the next year, there was another headline in the paper. The mayor of Sugar Creek got a DUI. Huh? <laughs> the mayor of Sugar Creek? He did. He was at a party, drove home, got pulled over. And they actually served him a DUI. I'm glad they did that. And here's where I gained respect for the man. About a year later, roughly, I saw another article in the paper. His trial had come up now, and he pled guilty. He owned up to it. He said, I did wrong. I respect the man. But he is a little bit on the young side to be the mayor of Sugar Creek, I think. You don't have to agree with me. We need elders. The elder stage is once the last child leaves home, approximately, to the end of my life. I now serve my community in a sacrificial way. In case you are thinking that I'm telling you you shouldn't work with people, let me redeem myself again. Most of us in here probably have children that are fairly well grown, and if you have young children, I have no problem if you work with people. Find yourself a support group and some people to bounce off. That's what this provides very well. But today, I'm excited because I probably see 200, 250 people in here that are trying to figure out how to help other people. Do you know how desperately we need that? You know how desperately we need for people to lay down their own lives and serve their community? It's no longer selfish, all about me and what I want to do and all that, but I'm going to give to other people. If I don't have that, the overall maturity of the community declines. In Montana, we had five older men in our church when we moved there, a very, very small church, and I still honestly do not understand this today. In two years, four of those men died, and the fifth one got Alzheimer's, was taken out of the picture. And all of a sudden, there was a bunch of young couples, myself included, 20s and 30s. We had age gaps out there that were trying to figure out how to rebuild a church. And we had no idea how to build a church. I still don't understand why God took the stability of that church away. It's literally what happened. We lost our stability. There's other factors that play into it, but on a sad note... That church today actually does not exist. The doors are closed, literally. It didn't work. We lost our stability. We need the older people in our community. We need their wisdom, their strength, their experiences. Finding hope in God's design. I believe that God wants me to allow the light of Christ's love to show through me. You can read that in 1 Corinthians, these earthen bodies, but we have the light coming through, and as I am broken, as I go through trials, temptations, struggles, if I respond in a godlike way, that shows the people around me Christ. Again, the testimony, uh, Bill and Cindy, awesome testimony, the prayers, the healing, the light they could be to community through that brokenness. They showed Christ to people Every difficult situation is an opportunity to display the life of Christ. Do you ever think of that? We really wouldn't be able to display Christ's life too well if there weren't difficult things to go through. Anybody could be a good Christian when things are going well. Everybody is mature when things are going well. Everybody on Sunday morning will walk through your church house doors and look very mature. And wonderful Christians. But throw in a little bit of anger or disgust or fear and people change. And all of a sudden you see the heart of people come out and you see what's really inside. But those are the things that really allow me to display the life of Christ, right? People don't reject Jesus. They don't. If you show people Jesus, they will accept Jesus. They reject the Jesus that I have or we have portrayed to them. Jesus himself said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, I know there's people that reject Jesus, even if it's presented in the right way. But as a whole, people, if they see the love, the care, the concern of God, the mercy of God, they are drawn to that. When we misrepresent Jesus as Christians, they say, huh, I don't want that. They reject the Jesus we portray to them. 
Two more thoughts and we'll close. People doing things for me makes me feel good. I like that, right? If you, no, (laughs) this isn't safe to say in a crowd like this, but don't do this. (laughs) If you bring me my food and you bring me water and you bring me a cup of coffee and you tell me to prop up my feet here today, oh, wow, I feel good. You're making me feel good. I bet I'll get 10 plates of food today now (laughs) in this crowd. (laughs) It's all about me. I feel good if you do things for me. But I really don't feel that good about myself because that's selfishness. If I care about other people, which is what you're desiring to learn to do, and you're already doing it if you're here, then I can feel good about myself and who I am, not just the pleasure of being, needs being met. One is essential, one is sacrifice. One final thought, 2 Corinthians 5.18, Jesus left. And he says that we are ambassadors for him. An ambassador is a representative of a country that goes into another country and represents the United States of America to Russia or Greece or wherever. That ambassador has no power in himself to make decisions. He has to do what the president says. God should be our president. We are only ambassadors showing people what the Christian life and Christian, the God's kingdom is like. And then he left. And then he says that he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus on this earth was reconciling man to God. Sin had destroyed that relationship. He reconciled them. Now he left. Now he says it's up to you, me, to bring about that ministry of reconciliation. Taking people where a relationship has been destroyed and bringing them back together and seek making peace with enmity bringing that back together. That's our ministry. If we can grow and mature, we're all in process. If we ask God for help, God will give us direction. If we bring God into the picture, that's possible, even if we find that we're not quite where we would like to be. I believe that's God's design for us. He has given each one of us a ministry. Whether you ever have an office or not, he's given each one of us a ministry to lay down our life for the sake of another person and help them along in life. Thank you.